It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. I'm Mark Feinstein, executive reporter for MLB.com. Welcome to the Executive Access Podcast. Before we get to this week's episode, a word from our sponsor. Erectile dysfunction is more common than you might think. 52% of men over 40 will experience ED at some point, and about 75% of those men don't seek treatment. That's why Roman makes it easy to get expert treatment from a U.S. licensed physician all online. No judgment, no hassle, no hours spent in the waiting room. With Roman, you get expert medical care for ED right in the comfort and privacy of your own home. Everything is online, so it's convenient and discreet to contact a doctor about prescription medication. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com major and complete an online visit with your medical history and symptoms. A licensed physician will evaluate your online visit and let you know within 24 hours if medication is right for you. If prescribed by the doctor, Roman delivers genuine medication right to your door with free two-day shipping. Just go to GetRoman.com major to get a free online visit and free two-day shipping. That's GetRoman.com major to get started with a free online visit. That's GetRoman.com major. Josh Boyd broke into the baseball world as a writer making a name for himself during a four-year stint covering prospects and the draft for Baseball America. But just when it seemed he was on track to be the host of a podcast like this rather than the guest, he gave up writing to become an area scout for the San Diego Padres, taking his first step towards a big league front office career. Boyd joined the Texas Rangers in 2008 as assistant director of pro scouting, earning a promotion to director the following year. He remained in that role for five years before becoming the club's senior director of player personnel, In November of 2016, he was named Assistant General Manager, continuing as one of John Daniels' top lieutenants. I sat down with Boyd to discuss his transition from one side of the business to the other, the art of scouting, what he's learned from Daniels, Thad Levine, and A.J. Preller, all of whom he worked with in Texas, and his memories from the Rangers' two trips to the World Series. Enjoy this conversation with Rangers' Assistant GM, Josh Boyd. Josh, you grew up in Washington State, moved to Irvine, California when you were in high school, were you always a big baseball fan? Who are you, California, Washington? Who are your favorite teams? Uh, of course, the Yankees. You know, because <laughs> I was on the West Coast. Well, my, yeah, my parents are from Jersey, and my grandpa was just a huge Yankee fan. So, anytime I, I, I looked up to him, he was he was my my idol, and um, so you know, get all the all the stories about when he was growing up and mantle and and everything. It was yeah, I, I love the Yankees and being on the West Coast. Uh, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd travel back to, to, to New York and, and to Jersey for summers, and, um, and it was you know, going to first game in Yankee Stadium. Those kind of memories you can't, you can't replace. They're pretty special. Was baseball always your favorite sport? Yeah, yeah. That uh, your first jobs in baseball were as a writer, uh, which, you know, obviously we can yeah. relate to on this end of it. Uh, you worked for Stats, Inc. starting in 1996. You did some work. For MLB.com in 1999, so we missed each other by just a couple of years. Uh, was a writing career kind of your long-term plan at that point? 
Yeah, it really was. It was, you know, early on when kind of realized that uh, playing is not an option, and um, I, I loved writing. And you know, like I said, my my, my grandpa was a writer, and and I I just loved writing. I, I would write about, I'd watch games on TV, and I'd I'd write about it. I'd I'd read other than I'd, I was constantly writing, and I, I still do all the time, which is you know, so so really, my my goal was to be become a writer, and. And honestly, once I realized there was such a thing as Baseball America that just covered prospects, all I wanted to do was write for Baseball America. And that was kind of my single, really, that was the path. I was going to do that. And, you know, I was fortunate enough, I think, when uh, some point along the way there was a dial-up internet and I was able to log on and start finding, you know, different things, MLB.com. Or I think I remember the first time, you know, and I can, I can still picture the ESPN sports zone page trying to load and i found you know rob nyer was right in there at the time and I, I would just go and i'd start emailing anybody and i would, you know so john sickles was writing the uh the stats um version of the, the prospect book they they had at the time and so i'm i'm trying to find all right rob nyer stats here espn how do i get in touch with john sickles i need to i need to know anybody and everybody was writing about prospects that's what i wanted to know I would send letters to Peter Gammons and to Baseball America, and never really hear back. But I, I think that's where the, you know, the, really the access to email and, and the internet opened up a, really a whole world for me. So uh, Stats Inc. had had on on the old 56k or something like that. They had they on, on AOL. They had a keyword stats that they had. I mean, it was it was. It was loaded with information. It was basically all their books with, with stats, but then they also had, you know, a couple of those books that they used to do with, you know, just just those essays, and they were they were fascinating. And then Mike Middleman, who worked for Stats at the time, and his son his son Ryan is actually pro scouting director for the Blue Jays now. Mike, same thing. I just start emailing people, and hey, I'll I'll write for you and write for free, and I and he gave me an opportunity on that uh, Stats. AOL site just start writing about prospects so I would I would do anything and everything to to you know learn about all these guys that uh, they're playing the minors and you know probably probably copied the style of Baseball America and John Sickles and Peter Gammons those old Sunday diamond notes and and everything and and just kind of uh, you know see what I could do with it but but that was that was the that was my passion really is you know, kind of the two things coming together, love for baseball and, you know, and, and really enjoyed writing. Where did the interest in prospects and minor leaguers come from? Because back at this time, late 90s, like you said, there wasn't a whole lot out there. You didn't have the sites that are now dedicated to it. You didn't have, really, fans didn't know quite that much about their team's prospects unless they were reading Baseball America or really digging into you know the the bottom of of notebooks. Uh, you know the writers were were writing, but even then, it just didn't seem like there was that much out there. What what sort of spurred your your interest in that area of the game? Yeah, I, you know, if you go way back, I, I think it probably had something to do with you know, baseball cards and rookie cards and wanting to always get that card and know who it was before everybody else. You know, and so it would be that. It would be those uh, you know the Street and Smiths or Sporting News. Uh, annuals and just going straight to the back to the prospects and just trying to learn about who the, who this next wave was and and I think that was just it was just something that always really intrigued me was trying to know something about those guys before before everybody else did 
So, you know, like I said, then Baseball America was like, whoa, this is amazing. Like, who's been hiding this from me for my whole life? Uh, at the point I discovered it, it was just, you know, it was jam-packed. And like you said, at the time, you know, you'd get maybe an annual from uh, some of those those magazines. And, and, you know, Gammons would write little nuggets uh, here and there in, in the Sunday column. But you, you couldn't find it everywhere or almost anywhere. So uh, that's part of the part of the intrigue was, was really just trying to, understand who these guys were and where they came from 2001 2004 you're covering minor league prospects in the draft as a national writer for baseball america what was your favorite part of that job oh man it was it was uh, it was baseball all 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 the time i think you know as i look back i remember one of the first days just realizing i had the, the baseball america directory there start flipping through it and go i can and call these people now and you know pick a story I wanted to do I remember the, the, the handful of very first people I called probably in the first week that were incredibly just uh, gracious with their time you know some some guy that uh, again at the time probably not many people were calling these these guys asking about prospects but Allard Baird was the GM of the Royals I may have called talk about Colt Griffin or somebody like that. You know, Jason McLeod was with the the Padres, and I, I would I would just go through the the book and go, oh, oh, this looks like a good name to ask for. He was assistant in player development, like probably knows a lot. And we'd talk about Jake Peavy and Dennis Tankersley, and you know, and then I think later in that year I went to to scout school for Baseball America to do an article, and Jason was there, and, and we've been real close friends ever since. So I think in a lot of ways it's the you know, the experience to be there, to get an opportunity to really write about baseball, talk about baseball, learn, you know, and kind of develop my craft as a, as a writer. You know, John Manuel, some of those guys that really uh, invested in me. and I think I was pretty raw as a writer, just kind of uh, figuring a lot of stuff out on my own and learning from, from others. So those, those relationships are extremely meaningful to me when I look back and the opportunities that they gave me. And then being there in Durham, North Carolina, you could go to anywhere from you know, across the street to see the Durham Bulls and AAA to, you know, the Appy League and basically every level in between. So I would go through the, you know, the daily uh, matchups and just you could just pick within an hour and a half or two of, of Durham, you could see top you know, 100 prospects every night. So... Those are the kind of things that, when I really reflect on it, it was it was a really exciting time in my life to be able to contribute to that level, and then also understand kind of the accountability of what it means to write, report, and put your name on it. My sources tell me Alex Anthopoulos was also at your scout school that year. He was. Uh, what was that experience like? I mean, obviously you were going there to, to do a story, but what was it like to actually go through that experience? Oh, it was it was incredible from a, from a sense of like I, I felt. You know, I think that that was my first year, 2001, at Baseball America, and I figured if I'm going to talk to scouts, talk to GMs, talk to people in, in player development uh, on a regular basis, I want to at least try to see the game through their eyes. What, what are we, what are we looking at? And I, you know, I really felt that would be a unique way to present, you know, the, my my perspective or a perspective through their lens on the on the players and the prospects. So. You know, learn learn about the 20 to 80 scale and kind of go through that whole process with um, you know the scouting bureau and the, you know guys like Jason and Alex there, Brian Barber who ended up when I did start scouting, Brian 
you know, former former first rounder with the with the Cardinals was was an area scout that probably helped me get through my first year. And, and again, it's those those relationships that uh, that stand out so much that the guys who who really help you along the way. But but you know, back to back to scout school, it was you know two weeks of immersion in in this new world that seeing the game through a different lens. And again, my my intent was fully just to really help me as a as a writer and. You know, trying to trying to bring a different angle of expertise to to the readers of the magazine, and you know, it ended up leading to, to something else down the road. But so your your goal at that point was to be a writer, yeah. writing for Baseball America, prospects. This is the dream job. How does that in two thousand four turn into you becoming an area scout <laughs> for the Padres? It, was, it really was a hundred percent. It was it was Baseball America all the way, and the, you you meet a, a ton of people along the way who. You know, one being Chief Gaten, who was the, the scouting director of the Padres at the time, and I think when, you know we we talk and call them, do their top ten, top thirty lists, and and all that, and you know we kind of develop a relationship, and, and then we'd see each other in person at games, and same thing. And he, you know, he later he told me he was he was interviewing me the whole the whole time, in, in a way, which is probably what scouts do, they're constantly <laughs> constantly evaluating. So. We're sitting there. I think we were we were just finishing up the 2004 prospect handbook in in, in the in the office in Durham, and I get a I get an email it comes across, and uh, I think it was in January, and and you know it's an email from Chief, and all it says is what do you think about scouting? And I'm like, well, I think scouting's really cool, and I respect what you guys do, and I'm like, I, I don't know, he's asking me about a job, so I send the email back, you know, just basically complimenting scouts and. Telling him what I think about scouting, <laughs> and he call, he calls immediately, and he's laughing hysterically on the other line. He's like, "No, he's like, we have a job open in, in the Mid Atlantic," and he goes, "I want to see what you think about it." And I'm I'm just you know maybe maybe this is me being naive. I was I was I was just really I was blindsided by the fact that like he viewed me to to be a candidate for that job. So you know ended up ended up taking it now first year there up in uh, in the mid atlantic lived in in richmond and then moved out to out west to to seattle area for 3 years out in the northwest did you you had been through scout school to that point but did you take to scouting right away when you did it or was there a learning process and a bit of a learning curve it's all i mean honestly i think scouting is just constant learning process so i think i always always had like that curiosity for scouting, evaluating, projecting, you know, again, maybe it goes back to like those early days of trying to trying to identify things that before everybody else did, whether it was to get a rookie card or or, or whatever that excitement, you know, originally was. But I, I it was I mean it, it's still a challenge. I think it's it's really challenging, you know, depending on the, the age group you're you're scouting, from Dominican, Latin America to, you know, all throughout the minor leagues and, and for the draft is it's it is it's like there's so many lessons along the way that I, I I don't think that that process ever ever really stops. I think the scout school gave a really good foundation of kind of understanding, you know, obviously the scale, but really developing what where does your scale come from? If you if you've never seen a 50 curveball before, how are you gonna know that that's not a 70 or a 20? Is there a specific skill set that makes for a better scout? Yeah, the, uh, the definitely a, there's definitely a specific skill set and and you, you can learn, <laughs> you know. So, you know, I think as as you know, I've been fortunate enough here to be able to be in position to help hire our staff, help develop you know, some of the guys along the way. 
Um, you know, I think the, you know, the, the, the things, the things that as a, as a reporter, you, you do gathering information, checking sources, those are some fundamental pieces of it before you even get to the field. You know, the organization of it, the ability to relay what you saw. Like I said, in a lot of ways, what I was doing at Baseball America was, was a very similar foundation to what it was ended up being with the Padres and, and since. And, you know, I think the, the instincts are going to vary from, you know, guys who are maybe been in the game forever or just have that, that natural intuition for seeing, seeing that special thing in a player. But I think the, you know, I think we, we take a lot of pride here in, in trying to help to understand what we're looking at, why we're, why we're looking at it, what we're looking for, what fits the Rangers, you know, and what, what do we learn from past lessons, good and bad, and other teams and our own mistakes. I guess uh, all that being said, I think, you know, the, the, the skill set kind of boils down to like being, being really attentive to details, also uh, with that huge database of your, your players and, and the background that, that you've scouted. You joined the Rangers in 2008 as assistant director of pro scouting, got promoted to director of pro scouting the next year. Uh, you held that role for five years. What were the biggest differences for you going from amateur scouting to pro scouting? Yeah, the, the, I, I, always, I felt really fortunate to be able to do, do an area and, and just be out on the road. Because as, as an area guy, you know, you're on your own. You're managing your area. You're managing your territory. You're reporting to get people to see your players, um, but you're responsible for the information that's coming in on that list. So the, that foundation of just being thorough was, was really good to come into the office. And now, you know, now it's 30 teams you're responsible for knowing their prospects top to bottom. You know, in a, in a lot of ways, I had existing relationship with JD and, and AJ and then got to know Thad, obviously, at w- working here. Uh, but but I, was, I was pretty close with, with AJ and JD before before coming here, so they they really helped develop me. They put they gave me a lot of opportunities that you know, I probably wasn't ready for at the time, but but learned on the job with with their guidance, and then all of us just kind of uh, going through a lot of things uh, together at the same time. I think the you know the communication with the scouts and and maybe maybe part of it is is the, you know being in their shoes, being out on the road, and understanding uh, those sacrifices that. Our staff makes to do this job, and how much uh, how much goes into it. I think the communication was probably one of the most important things, and probably the, the biggest difference, as opposed to as an area guy being out, you know, again just responsible for my list and reporting up to cross checker director, uh, where this was really helping direct an entire staff to, you know, just I want to I want to know what they're seeing. Um, I want to try to help, you know, point them in the right direction when needed, but. Now, again, I was I was still in the process of, of learning from a veteran, experienced staff that we had here when I when I got here. You mentioned that you already had relationships with with John Daniels and AJ Preller. Was that just from being a writer and talking to them a lot, or where did you first sort of get was, to know them? That was through that was through us. We met I met AJ through a mutual friend, and and we all met at the uh, at the winter meetings when I think all three of us and Mike Daly were all there just trying to get jobs and. They were they were trying to become GMs and uh, you know within the next ten years, which they pretty much did. And I was trying to chase Peter Gammons down and <laughs> find, find out where Jim Callis was. So it was it was it was one of those things that I think the you know that time spent in the lobby waiting 
and just talking baseball with each other at such a similar point in our in our life and trying to get to a, a goal and a dream that we really connected so you know from from that it may have been I think the 99 or 2000 winter meetings somewhere in that range in Anaheim and then you know the next couple of years after that you know they, they ended up going their different ways with internships and things like that and so we, we all stayed in pretty close contact as as things progressed after your director of pro scouting job your next move was the senior director of player personnel what was your favorite part of that job yeah I think I think that was at the point where when when uh, when AJ moved on to the Padres so you know the responsibility as closely as AJ and I worked together learned it learned it a ton from him on how how thorough we knew we knew players as an organization. Um, so the, the the challenge there just being to continue that uh, those high expectations, you know, and and be able to really be out in front of of whatever that information was that needed to be filtered ultimately to, to JD for for making decisions. I think the you know the the expanded part of responsibility there was just. You know, a little more connected to the major league team and, and some of those decisions. But but again, the, the close relationships and, and JD and Thad really investing in me and in those times was was key. Two years after you came to Texas, the Rangers made their first of two straight World Series appearances. They'd never been there before. What do you remember most about <laughs> about those runs? Do you have any favorite story or two from those those two years? Yeah, I mean, what it was, it was obviously absolutely incredible. Just you know, part of a part of a dream. But I think to see to see all of us and organizationally, like what had been started before I was here, when I think 2007, the Mark Teixeira trade and Elvis and Naftali, to see all these pieces come together, to see the energy that Ron Washington and that staff had on a, on a nightly basis was was pretty pretty special way to like break into a front office I you know I think the you know some, some of those experiences throughout the the playoff runs you, you never forget you know we get to the end of of both of them you know obviously in in St. Louis you know just uh, uh you talk uh, talk about memories or or nightmares or, or whatever <laughs> but, but either way the the moments within those games that you know there was a there was a 2010 Cliff Lee couple of the moments where we were all just in awe of him and you know so you'd go down after a win Tampa and in, and in New York and just to see him uh, after he after he'd carved and just and he, and he didn't look like he'd broken a sweat and he's just like wow that, that was fun huh and you know you just see this this to see that side of it see a little more intimately to and to understand really those stories of how how many people whether whether it was a trade like Cliff Lee that you know, we, we had our scouts sat on them for you know two months leading up to that, and you know the the Blake Bevins and the players we traded in it, and and knowing all the different stories and development that that went into each of those guys to culminate in in those deals. I think that's still how I watch the game now. Is when I look out and you know see Guzman and Odor and Mazzara, and you think of them when we scouted them at 15, and how many players have have come along, uh, or how many people were involved in and Getting them, getting them to this point, it's, and I said that, that that's part of the way I I view the game is through those those stories and. Yeah. You uh, you've mentioned all three of these guys to this point, uh, John Daniel, Stad Levine, AJ Preller. You were in the front office with all of them. 
they're all, you know, running or co-running teams at this point. Is there one thing that you learned from each of them that you've tried to incorporate into your own repertoire as an executive? Yeah, definitely. The the you know, I'd I'd say like the point we're at now, and and you know, and, and JD and Thad in particular, uh, I think a huge stamp on on this organization is how how we treat people, um, and the fact that it's you know we're we're competitive and and the whole organization competitive by nature, but that that the way that again going back to the, the sacrifice that everybody in this building makes to get a winner out on that field and that we're, we're, we're doing it together and, and that we can we can be friends while we're doing it we can really enjoy the special moments and the challenging moments with each other um, I would say that you know Thad, Thad may be one of the best in the game in terms of, of having time for people to listen to the things that uh, as he described them they may not be the, the bullet points on your job description but they may be more important than anything else that's that's on there, so I think I think being in an organization that, that values those things is is something that uh, you know I feel really really fortunate to be able to, to do. Um, I think we have a we have a great culture in that sense that we guys really enjoy working together, learning together, and trying to compete to, to bring a World Series to, to Texas. Um, with AJ, it was you know it was, it was, it was purely about. Just baseball, twenty-four-seven player evaluation, and, and again, in a competitive sense, of knowing probably the the thoroughness of of really knowing players inside and out, and uh, it, it was challenging. You knew you were gonna you're gonna have an you have an opinion. You're gonna get asked your opinion. We were gonna talk about it over and over again at any time of the, of the day and evening, and um, it, so so being prepared. Being thorough, and then and then just looking for those those competitive advantages that that maybe we value more than than anybody else. In November of 2016, after Thad left to go to the Twins, uh, you were promoted to assistant general manager. According to your bio, written I assume by the great John Blake, uh, you advised John Daniels on all professional acquisitions and trades, help establish the team's scouting and personnel philosophies, evaluate talent domestically at the major, minor, and amateur levels as well as professional baseball around the globe. Last time I checked, there's only 24 hours in a day. How do you possibly juggle that many responsibilities in one, in one job? <laughs> I think it was, it's, you know, the, the contributions in, in each of those areas. But, you know, again, I go, I go back to probably one of the more fulfilling parts of, of all those things that fall under any of these jobs is being able to include people, develop people, and, and, and just work with people who, you know, who are really... We we do all that stuff together, you know. No, nobody's. Uh, I don't. I don't think anybody has enough time to do a lot of the things that we all do. But we, we when when you do them together as a staff. So yeah, all over the globe is is uh, I think is you know probably really referring to the, the pack rim is is an area that I've been heavily involved in. And then you know whether it's Mike Daly, Ross Fenstermaker, uh, obviously AJ through the years like the Latin America part of the globe is, uh, you know, I'll pop down there and, and get involved, but, um, but that, you know, that's been an area of their, their expertise and, and insight. You mentioned the Pacific Rim. You oversee the scouting operations over there. Among the guys you helped play a role in bringing over here, Colby Lewis, Tony Barnett, Chris Martin. Uh, why do you think players like them, most recently Miles Michaelis with the Cardinals, uh, 
you had him in Texas before he went to Japan. Why do you think guys really seem to thrive coming back to the majors after playing in Japan? So I think with those guys, you know, I think Colby, Tony Barnett, and Chris Martin's uh, you know, in the second year now. Miles Michaelis coming off a great, you know, sort of bounce back year. I, th- I think they are really good examples of guys who went over there at a at a point in their career where, you know, Tony hadn't pitched in the big leagues and he'd been, you know, two or three years in AAA, really successful throughout his amateur career, pro career, but was always always just short, didn't get an opportunity. Colby was obviously first round pick and big stuff, got to the big leagues quick. And then started bouncing around. Now he's on waivers, and he's you know whatever. He went Oakland to Detroit to. He's a he's a reliever. He's a starter. He's AAA. He's all these things. And so I think one there's a, there's a ton of talent, but they're the, the guys that are at a point in their career where they're going there and they have opportunity. And one of the parts of I, I believe for these guys is key is okay. There's opportunity, but there's also you're in you're in a new culture. It's it's not MLB. It's not the game you grew up playing. So. The guys who, who, who respect that and adapt to it, I think, are the guys who their opportunity continues. You know, Tony ended up pitching five or six years there and ended up becoming a closer. And, and Colby was almost lights out from, from day one. But I think, I think there's a realization that this is, this is the opportunity now. If you, if you don't perform, you're going to the minors in, in Japan, which is not where you want to be. And, and, I, and it's not the easiest spot to really do probably any anything close to the routine that you've been used to throughout your career so I think it's that perspective but I, I think the guys who adapt to the culture and accept that maybe they don't they don't do everything exactly the way Japanese players do but they do have to adapt you know it, it, it can't be just uh, you can't go there and change the game so again it's there's a little bit of maybe the survival in that opportunity um, but I think there's there's also a, a, you know the vulnerability to go there, and, and adapt and understand like this is their territory and it's a lot easier if you you know Tony and, and his wife Hillary like learn, learn Japanese and become a part of the community. What are the, the biggest challenges of scouting players in international leagues where the level of competition is a tick or in some cases well below a tick, uh, you know below what what you're hoping to see them do in the majors. Yeah, the you know the again the game the game is so different. The ball is different. The mound is different. The the style of hitting in Japan is is very different. You know, I think I think Colby especially has pro- probably opened uh, a lot of eyes. And and you know, Michaelis really uh, again last year was was able to come over have success. So the guy they when they when they left they were minor league free agent level guys, right? So that. I think going there and establishing themselves to the point where regardless of the competition level, whether you want to say it's wherever it falls on major league to triple A or, or anywhere in between is, is that if you look and you go, Colby's throwing strikes, he's throwing 90, 94, I think at the time, it's a good slider plus slider. Um, his delivery's better, you know, like do those things add up to, you know, playing. If, if it was just the exact same guy as when he left, I think those are the guys that you, you probably evaluate and say, oh, he's the same same level guy. Uh, Miles Michaelis goes over there and he really, really learned to pitch. You know, I think he started to make some breakthrough towards the end with us in AAA and then, and then that last month or so in the big leagues. But 
again, he goes over there, he's in the rotation with the Giants, and and just strikes, strikes play anywhere, plus curveball plays anywhere, velocity and, and good command plays anywhere. So I think it's I think it's like it's just giving them giving them the respect that they've made an adjustment that you don't just ah oh, that's you know that's the same guy we saw three years ago that we didn't like enough to guarantee anything. So those guys, I, they, they've they've opened doors and minds, I think, for for a lot of opportunities. What was the experience of the U Darvish bidding process like for you? Um, it was it was fun. It was a you know I think I think with situations like that and you know even even the Otani pursuit is it's it's probably the closest thing to to maybe a little bit of a college recruiting style. Um, Darvish was. Was the different part there is the blind bid, which right. was, you know, was was wild in, in a sense of not really knowing what you're shooting for and having dice K as as like that marker, but you know you you still don't know. And that had been several years earlier too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I, I don't remember if there if there was any major there there was uh, some major posts in between there that weren't in that range, but. But anyway, I think the, you know the focus for us was really on. You knew it was going to be a huge. What, what, however, the, the the sum added up in post and salary, you knew it was going to be a huge investment. So, um, I think it was it was about really putting together a, a track record, a history, a book on everything we could find out about you, Darvish. So, you know, we saw ninety percent of his starts, the probably the two seasons before. You know, we'd had history. Jim Colburn was here at the time. He, he, and I think AJ had seen him back in back in high school. It was it was trying to do everything we could to know as much as we possibly could about you, Darvish, without being able to be in front of him until the time was appropriate. So we go back to like relationships and connections, and you know, the the, the Nippon Ham Fighters are just a great organization. Guys that you know, probably from that point forward, from from signing Darvish, that we've we've developed really good working relationship with and then you know his parents that we we got to know throughout the year and then even even since after we signed them you know they were that was a big part of it for us and and again I understand it comes down to the top dollar was it was what got him but we wanted to know we wanted to know as much as we could about him and then we also wanted if, if we were the place that he was going to sign, we wanted him, his family, anybody who's important to him to know that you are coming to a place that we're going to try to do everything we can to put you in position to succeed. And that's what made the Otani thing so different is it wasn't about top dollar. Right. That was about, that was probably more of the, the college recruiting type of a visit, right? It, it, it was probably one of the more unique situations and, and uh, you know, outside of maybe, you know, Latin America free agent scouting down there. But but yeah, it was it was uh, he's he's special talent and kind of took that same approach with if he is to choose to come here, it's be, it's going to be in part because he knows that top to bottom, this is an organization that understands who he is, has a really good feel and respect for Japanese culture, and that whether it's Darvish, you know, the the, the, the pursuit and hope for uh, for Otani or the next guy is like I think that's such a big part you can't overlook. It's not. It's not just the talent. It's uh, he's you know, him, like Darvish and his family um, are going to move here, and they're going to be in a new culture. And how how can we help them adapt? Because that's uh, like I said, it plays a huge huge role in the whole thing. You also oversee the Rangers analytics department. 
because uh, you know you didn't have enough going on. Uh, there was a time when analytics were being utilized at different levels by various organizations. Now every team has a pretty deep analytics department. How can front offices differentiate themselves in that landscape? It's been uh, the whole R and D analytics. Everything has been really this this. Even though back to Moneyball 16 years ago, you know. So from from that point forward, I think we've seen. Well, I was at Baseball America at the time when Moneyball came out, and I, I guarantee you I was on the – I'd be scared to read some of the stuff I wrote at the time because I was, I was, I was cemented in with the scout side of the scout versus right. stat debate and, you know, how, how can this happen? It, it was such a us versus them time in the game. And it was, you know, to get to your question, I think as, as you look what's happened now and what we try to do – is not not just the cliche of a blend, but but really for for both sides to like kind of have a understanding of of the subjective and objective, the art and the science of, of what we're doing to to be able to, to raise the bar for for both, right? Can we can we include a little bit of the art and the science together to find uh, that competitive advantage? So it's it's been you know we've, we've added a. a pretty big number of, of analysts and developers here in the last uh, really in the off season and, and kind of dating back to last year but their you know, spring training is, is such a great time where the, the inclusion of everybody in this building you know and it, and it really you know from our major league staff with with Woody with Julio Rangel as our, our pitching coach with Louis Ortiz hitting they want the information so I, I think I think the fact that the, the analysts that are in position to really understand what the what the what the goal is of, of a major league staff in this case, or what you know what, what JD wants, or how how we want information um, to challenge us and drive us, and then and then also to uh, just just to be in that position to constantly seek um, opportunity, but but it's it's through connection, it's not isolation. You know, it's not just hey, go you know, deep dive, and we'll see you when you come out. It's, right. It's you're in your you're in our pro scouting meetings. You know, you're in meetings with the major league uh, coaches. The players are more fluent and and all this now, and so put, putting them in position to really help uh, present to to implement uh, with, with some with some clarity is is such a key to the whole process. In 2010. You said that as important as statistical analysis is, you rely on your scouting staff first and foremost. Uh, we're nearly a decade later now. Given all the advancements in analytics, is that still the case, or has it balanced out a little bit? Yeah, I, I think it's. I mean, a lot of our recent trades have still been driven by scouting-based de- decisions. You know, you look at the Keone Kella trade last last summer. Um, you know, there, there's a, there's a there's a balance that. I don't know how to define it on you know necessarily, but you know Shirton Apostle is a, is a key player, is a player to be named in that in that deal, and you know and the the background on him from uh, from an amateur to the the work that our scouts did going in to see him and the Appy League drove that drove that deal significantly. You know, of course we our analysts are are also you know checking to see are, are we on. Are we on even close on the same page? If if it's not, we're going to have more discussions. I, so I think I think it's I think to answer your question, I think it's not the same as 2010. Is it? Um, it creates a different type of, of discussion, different type of follow up uh, for 
what do, what do both sides mean? Subjectively, we see this. Objectively, with the data, we see this. How much data do we have to, to really understand Shirt and Apostle in the Appy League at that point? You know, I, th those, those things all factor into how much do we weigh each, how much do we factor each. But, but again, our, I think our, our scouts are continue to be a significant, meaningful, meaningful part of that puzzle. You're living proof that goals in life change. You, all you wanted to do was write prospects for Baseball America. Your career is taking quite a turn. As you sit here, 2019, uh, is becoming a GM a major goal for you in this in this career? It's, it's not a major goal. It's not. I think I think part of you know you said that that path of change from you know before Baseball America and finding freelance opportunities and having that that goal. At that point, there was a goal, and, and, and maybe even little. Uh, it, there was a there was a goal without necessarily a clear path on how to get to Baseball America. I just knew I wanted to do it, and I think I think part of that path and the and the opportunities that were within there was just open-mindedness to learn along the way. Knowing I, I had to I had to figure out how to get there, and I think that allowed me to like really appreciate each of those moments, the experiences, the the relationships along the way, the mentors, and as I became an area scout, I think I took the same. Once I, once I was an area scout, I just wanted to be the best area scout. I, I, I scouted for four years for four drafts, and I wasn't even close to the best area scout. So it was it was kind of it was the same. I want to do this. Like I didn't think I was going to work in a front office. I didn't think I was going to you know become assistant GM. And so I think for me, I, I, I truly just try to appreciate and respect and, and learn what I'm doing while I'm doing it, and it's been. Um, I'm extremely grateful for, for the opportunities, and I, and I feel like that whatever whatever happens next, it, it just happens. And, and but but I think it's it's about really really uh, kind of diving into what you're doing now and, and trying to be the best at it. Josh Boyd, Texas Rangers assistant general manager. Thanks a lot for your time. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Mark. It's been been fun. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Many thanks to Josh Boyd for taking the time to sit down for this week's episode of Executive Access. Coming up in future episodes this season, I'll sit down with Royals Assistant GM Scott Sharp, Brewers Farm Director Tom Flanagan, and other executives around the league. You can search for Executive Access on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Art19, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear, leave us a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those. And be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about executive access. Until next time, I'm Mark Feinstein. Picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. 
We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 